Show Me the Science with Professor Luke O'Neill. Hello, I'm Luke O'Neill and welcome to my Show Me the Science podcast. Now, I'm constantly reading and looking at science because that's the way I am. Every chance I get and I'll see things that are interesting or that are boring. And whatever I think is interesting is my opinion. Other people might find other stuff interesting. But certainly, uh, some of the stuff I cover, I hope you find interesting yourselves. Uh, and there's so much going on. I mean, it's incredible. The great thing is, if you're a scientist, new stuff is happening all the time. And that, I think, why I became a scientist early on. I have this need for novelty, I suppose. And uh, in my own field, every day I'm scanning for who's discovered stuff in immunology and I'll see a new discovery and it'll really get me thinking, you know. And that might get me to think of experiments. And that's how science works, by the way. We all watch each other and develop what happened before. And science, hopefully, moves forward all the time. So it really is all about novelty now. The topic, I love this one, are these huge, big machines that were built to look at different things in science. These are the biggest machines ever built, actually, and they're also the most expensive machines ever built. And they were built to help us look at the world, do experiments, get data, and as you all know by now, data is the key thing here. So what are the biggest machines ever? And, of course, what's interesting is uh, they keep developing them and adding bits on and making them better all the time. And I'm going to give these four machines to you now. And I keep uh, reading about them. And as I say, they're a fascination. And you'll have heard of some of these, watch. So the first one is the Atacama Large Millimeter Array. In the high desert of northern Chile, an international team of scientists and engineers is on a quest to unlock the secrets of the hidden universe. This is a huge telescope. And it's in the Atacama Desert in Chile. Guess how much it costs. Now, we have to talk about money and someone has to pay for these things, I guess. This machine, and I'm calling them machines as a, as a simple kind of thing to call them, costs $1.4 billion to build. And what is it? It's a very big telescope. And you might say, imagine investing all that money into a telescope to look at the, the cosmos and the stars. But remember, that money was used to pay for people to work, to pay for engineers, to pay for staff. So, so when, when a government spends that kind of money, all these are often, uh, you know, the US administration often pays for these things. It's recirculating money in an economy. So even though we think oh, that's a huge amount of money, it is actually creating economic activity. So what is this machine? It's 16,000 feet above sea level. It's in the desert in Chile. Why is it there? Very clear skies, pristine stargazing, they call it. So they built it there on purpose to get the best possible chance to look at the cosmos. And it's very good at measuring radio waves. And as people will know, things like pulsars emit radio waves. You can look at the stars uh, as emitting light, but also uh, celestial bodies can also emit radio waves and they can be detected as well. It's got 66 huge dishes. It's effectively a 14,000 foot wide single telescope is how it's been described. So it's a massive big telescope looking up at the stars, discovering all this new stuff about the cosmos and about astronomy. And that's our first really big machine. Now, the second one is called the National Ignition Facility. A one watt laser can light a match. Imagine then the power of a 500 trillion watt laser. That's exactly what they've built here at the National Ignition Facility. It's in Livermore in California. Now this one cost 3.9 billion to build. And again, that seems like an awful lot of money. Now what is this machine trying to do? Well, it's trying to turn a single hydrogen seed 
into a huge big star-like explosion. That's how it's described, right? Now what that means is this is all about fusion and trying to get clean, sustainable energy. There's many places like this around the place. In other words, can we get a really sort of uh, more sustainable type of energy uh, or use energy in this way without destroying the planet is the idea. And there's a huge amount of effort going into things like fusion to try to, you know, capture the energy of, uh, of a star. I mean, they talk about they're trying to create little suns in this thing in a way is one way to think of it. Uh, and, and therefore the cost will be justified, wouldn't it? Imagine if we could come up with a way to make, uh, or at least uh, to capture uh, clean, sustainable energy through fusion. That's the mission here. Now this machine, uh, it's as I say, it's a huge big uh, machine in Livermore. It's got 40,000 mirrors, to give you an idea, special high-tech mirrors, of course. And they use these mirrors in various ways and 192 lasers. Now can you imagine building a machine with 192 lasers and all these very complex moving parts and its only goal a very laudable goal though it might be as I say is to come up with a clean sustainable energy source that could fuel the whole planet and there's all kinds of numbers coming off these experiments that they're doing there you know they're able to capture energy in like in a microsecond that if they could capture it effectively could be a huge source of energy to light up you know millions of homes and various things so that that ignition facility is all about trying to understand the world of fusion and then trying to get a sustainable form of energy in that way so again very laudable goal and it's probably worth the money if they get there in the end now the next two though are ones i bet you've heard of because they've been in the media an awful lot and they featured in all kinds of documentaries. And the first is the Large Hadron Collider, or the LHC. What's described as the world's largest atom smasher. This is around the border of France and Switzerland. It's the biggest single machine on Earth. So if you listed all the machines on Earth, this is the biggest one. And we always talk about scale about these things, I suppose. And what it is, is it's a big underground tunnel and in this tunnel, it sends protons around that tunnel close to the speed of light, 27 kilometers long. And the protons smash off each other and then they measure what comes out of these protons clashing. And this is all about particle physics. And actually, it dates all the way back to an Irish scientist called Ernest Walton. And he was in Cambridge as a postdoctoral scientist and he was one of the first to smash atoms, the lithium atom. Atoms! One, two, three, four, six of them. And he won the Nobel Prize, actually, for being an atom smasher. And that was the very sort of beginning of this, in a way. And in fact, very interestingly, now the machine he was using was much smaller than the Large Hadron Collider. That original atom smashing machine that Walton made is in the lobby of the building where the Large Hadron Collider is. Isn't that nice? So they, they give the history of atom smashing. This machine is smashing protons together. And it's a bit like billiard balls. They use the analogy sometimes in these two billiard balls smash off each other and when you smash them apart then you get subatomic particles or in this case what are protons made of kind of thing and then they measure them and that's what that machine does now obviously it's extremely elaborate to get these protons to fire up to the speed of light is a hugely uh, sort of adventurous thing to do in a way it's got loads of magnets it's got ways to do this it's incredible and they've been running this machine for quite a while now and uh, this particular machine again it's billions and billions uh, the cost is about 3.7 billion so it's in the same range as the national ignition facility I think it was slightly more expensive maybe uh, but still a lot of money to spend on this machine to smash protons together now what has it discovered well the phrase that every physicist hates, the God particle. The so-called God particle. That gives God particle. The elusive God particle. Has In 2012, found. they detected the Higgs boson. 
And the temperature had to be down to 456 degrees below zero to capture that. Uh, this was colder than the temperature in outer space. This, these cold temperatures are needed to detect these things, for example. But they, they found the Higgs boson. That had been uh, uh, theoretically proposed by Higgs, of course, uh, and other scientists many years before. And the Higgs boson is the thing that gives things mass. So nothing would have mass in the universe without the Higgs boson. That gives rise to one of my favourite jokes, which Owen will love, I know, in science. The Higgs boson walks into a church and the priest shouts out, I'm sorry you can't come in here. And the Higgs boson says, ah, but without me you can't have mass. But, but anyway, that's the... So uh, mass exists because of the Higgs boson and they detected it and proved it existed, which was fantastic. They've also found the quark gluon plasma. This uh, was the type of matter that existed in the early universe. And again, they're learning a lot about the early universe. 10,000 scientists worked there, so it employs a huge number of people. And again, the idea of all this money, it is generating economic activity in various ways. It's got eight huge detectors. And I guess another application... And obviously, our scientists were just curious and trying to figure things out about the world. But it's good if, if stuff comes out of it, that would be useful. Uh, they've got great ways of handling massive data. It generates 15 petabytes of data each year. That's a huge amount of data is coming off these experiments. And they've got to store the data, analyze it, and they're learning all new ways to handle big data. And of course, as science is all about data, that could be very useful in other uh, branches of science, how to handle huge data sets and interpret them in various ways. They're also trying to create the conditions that were there in the Big Bang at the start of the universe. Imagine that. And of course, the LHC is featured in all kinds of science fiction things. They were worried, actually, there was a fear that when they did start smashing protons together, the universe might disappear or there could be some massive explosion and all that kind of thing. That was extremely unlikely. Thankfully, it didn't happen. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here to talk about it. So still, a lot of people wonder about this mystery, the mystery of the subatomic world and the large Advan Collider is revealed. And who knows what might be discovered there? The great thing about science is you don't know where it's going to go next and they might make discoveries that we didn't even expect that could be very useful to us. Again, it may ultimately be a bit like the um, National Ignition Facility in that there'll be a great way to get sources of energy to fuel the whole Earth in a safe way. Wouldn't that be a great goal from these experiments as well as learning about the nature of the universe? Now, the last one, the International Space Station. It comes equipped with labs, a gym, sleeping quarters, two bathrooms, and the view is literally out of this world. Now, this is mind-bogglingly vast and massive. The cost of it so far, get ready for those of you interested in money, $107 billion is the cost. Now, that's way ahead of all the other things combined, isn't it? So this has cost an awful lot of money to build. Um, but again, that money was invested in companies and many, many companies were involved in the making of the space station. Again, lots of employment created. Now, what is it? Well, as you all know, I imagine it's above the Earth, 200 miles above the Earth, actually. And it's the space station doing lots of experiments up there. And it's a great collaboration. And again, another reason for these kinds of things, like the EU, in a way, get countries to talk to each other and collaborate. And maybe that makes things better. This is a massive collaboration. The US, Russia, Japan, the European Space Agency and Canada are the main places that you know the main countries or collections of countries involved in this and they've paid for it in various ways you know and they send their astronauts up there to live in the space station of course now, there's two main sections the american section and the russian section but they all talk to each other so it's quite nice up there uh, so it's a huge collaborative effort 
which is fantastic really to see, isn't it? All these different scientists working together. And again, thousands and thousands of scientists on Earth uh, doing stuff terrestrially, and then the ones they send up there do all kinds of experiments. Now, what's going on up there? Well, I'd love to be up there. Wouldn't that be brilliant, you know? I mean, <laughs> I'd volunteer to go up there, to be honest. It's, it's an incredible place. It's travelling at around about 17,000 miles per hour. We use American numbers because the Americans back it up, uh, about 200 miles away. Uh, and there's all kinds of interesting statistics which I find interesting. If you want to bring a bottle of wa- an extra bottle of water up to the space station, it'll cost you $10,000. Okay, so that, that's because of the weight of the bottle of water to get it, ship it up there. You know, so it's expensive to get things up and down. Now, it's, it's therefore no surprise that what do they do? They recycle water everybody's wee is cleaned and you drink it again, sadly. Not very nice to think of it. But as I've said, when they purify the water from the wee, it's it's purer than any water on Earth. So it's quite okay to recycle water in that way. Another great one I, I came across was a bottle of wine. Our bottles of wine were aged up there for 14 months. Now, why would they do that? Well, they were wondering, you know, would that help wine age? What would happen if you if you kept wine in a zero-gravity environment? And someone tasted the wine. It was a Petraeus 2000. And it tasted great. Now, that's, maybe that was the first glass of wine they'd had in months, I don't know. But certainly the notion that you could age wine up in space. And then one of these bottles of wine was put up for auction uh, recently. And, uh, you know, the asking price was millions. I don't think it's sold yet, mind you. But certainly they're now auctioning wine that aged on the space station. And maybe collectors would want to buy that. So, so that's something that they did up there as, a, as an interesting little quirky experiment, I suppose. But meanwhile, there's much more serious experiments happening. They're growing plants up there. Lettuce, for example. Uh, to see how things grow in space. Obviously, some of this is to do with, ultimately, if we end up having a moon base or even having a base on Mars, we can learn a huge amount from the space station. Experiments there will inform that. A really important one is how our bodies change in space. So all the astronauts are measured constantly. They're looking at muscle atrophy. So muscles can waste away, or not waste away, but certainly get weaker in space. Bone density is affected by being in space. And of course, they're trying to prevent these from happening. Each astronaut on the space station has a very strict exercise regimen to make sure the muscles are kept going during their time in space, for example. So, so in other words, they're looking at the biology of what happens to our bodies in space. Another really interesting one they're doing up there is they've realized that uh, one of the key goals of biology and, and, and um, I guess, drug discovery is to get proteins to crystallize. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you get the shape of a protein from a crystal. So you make proteins turn into crystals and then you can see their shape using x-ray crystallography, for example. You can then design drugs, say, to target that protein to treat diseases. So, for example, if an enzyme is implicated in a disease, can you develop a drug to block that enzyme? If you know the structure, the 3D structure of the enzyme, you can use clever chemistry now to design a way to target that protein. It could be useful in disease. And they've noticed in zero gravity, proteins crystallize much more readily. So they've taken these proteins up there and they form these crystals. And that's informing the effort to make medicines. Now, to me, that's a great example. So here we have uh, the goal on Earth is to develop new medicines. To do that, you have to get this structure of proteins. The International Space Station is helping us there because you get these crystals more readily on the space station Then you might design drugs that you wouldn't otherwise get, basically. Although, mind you, most recently, as, as I may have talked about before, they've got artificial intelligence now to predict the structure of proteins, so maybe that won't be needed anymore and maybe superseded. But certainly at the moment, they're still trying to grow these crystals for different proteins on the space station, and that could be very useful in drug discovery. So all kinds of applications are happening on the International Space Station. And of course, 
course, many feel that this is where the real science is happening in a sense, because the more we can learn about space, ultimately, the more we can think about traveling into space. And that could bring all kinds of benefits and advantages. And this money's never wasted because, as I say, many spin-offs, many things are understood from work on the space station. So it's a very well justified uh, thing to be investing in. So there are big machines. And remember, you need big machines to do big science, I suppose, often. And that's what these big machines are doing. And the ultimate goal of all of these combined is to learn about space, and that's going to be useful. Secondly, the real goal of the ignition facility in the LHC will be about renewable, sustainable energy, ultimately, as well as learning fundamental questions from science that we've done for hundreds of years. And we never know where those discoveries go. If, if Faraday hadn't discovered electricity as just a scientific thing, you know, we'd never have electrical power on Earth, you know. So you never know what these uh, big machines might reveal to us that would help us into the future. And of course, the ultimate goal for science being to understand more about the nature of you know, all these various things and then hopefully help us as we move into the future. So there's our, our podcast for this week. Hope you enjoyed that. And remember, my Show Me the Science podcast is available every Thursday and it's a News Talk production. <laughs>